we tried to figure out, okay, how much is it going to take for us to sustain our lifestyle, right? Like how much do we personally need in passive income per month to live? Um, how much do we need in savings? How much do we want in, you know, different investments? And once we reached that in cash flow and savings, that was like, okay, we can now, you know, leave our, our nine to five jobs. You found the Real Estate Law Podcast. Because real estate is more than just pretty pictures, and law goes well beyond paperwork and courtroom arguments. If you're a real estate professional or looking to build real estate expertise, then welcome to the conversation and discover more at realestatelawpodcast.com. You found the Real Estate Law Podcast. My name is Rory Gill with Nexum Title Town and Urban Village Legal. And I'm really excited today. We're joined by Kendra Barnes. She is a full-time wife, mother, and real estate investor who retired from the nine to five at the age of 32 doing the work. Um, you'll see her. She's the founder and creator of The Key Resource, which is a whole collection of resources for anybody who's looking to get into real estate investing. And she's also uh, the author of an upcoming book, Acres, uh, inspiring stories of 25 real estate investors who are normalizing black wealth one acre at a time. So with that, I'm really excited. Welcome, Kendra. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thank you for having me. Super excited. We just kind of rattled off in the introduction a lot of the things that you're, you know, that you are working on, you've been working on, and any one of those things would have been really impressive unto itself. That tells me you must have been deeply involved in real estate from the very beginning of your life. Is that right? <laughs> I wish, but not at all. It's so crazy because I grew up in a middle-class household, like, you know, with that very normal trajectory that I was going after, like go to school, get a good job, like, you know, get married, buy a house, like just kind of going after the American dream. We did not grow up wealthy, but we grew up middle-class because my parents were in the military. So we didn't ever want for anything, but we didn't ever talk about investing, right? Mm -hmm. It was like, get a good job. And thankfully, I got a good government job. I was actually international economist for the Department of Agriculture for 10 years. And so, yeah, I wish I had been involved in real estate investing from the very beginning. But what happened was I played the game cash flow one day. And that what put me on to the idea of passive income in real estate. So this is after your career's already started. You're into the government job and then you have the, the realization after the fact that that might not be an end all for your career. Yeah, it's funny because I actually realized it in grad school. So I went to undergrad and then I went to grad school at Purdue University. And halfway into my first year, I tried to drop out mm -hmm. and my mom wouldn't let me because I was on a full ride scholarship. And she was just like, that's crazy. Like you're wasting this opportunity. So I ended up staying there. I'm glad I finished it. But I just knew that what I was going after just wasn't for me. You know, as you grow up and you start to really get a sense of who you are, but I didn't know what that other thing was. So I finished grad school, went to DC, started working as an international economist, and I just didn't like the nine to five life, but I really didn't know any way out. I thought, okay, I'm going to have to work this job until I'm like 70 and then I retire and then I live the life of my dreams. And then in comes cash flow, right? And that's where I got introduced to this idea of, oh, you can make your money work for you and then you can reach financial freedom. And so that's where everything just kind of took off from there. And at the time I was married, we owned our primary residence and we had never thought about owning any other real estate. Like for us, that was it. We're like, cool, we bought this big house, like we've made it. And, you know, everything just snowballed after playing that game. So what was the first step you took after you 
you opened your eyes up to kind of in the world of real estate investing or just investing mm-hmm. in general. What was the first step you took? Yeah, we went and started. So we, we played cash flow on like a Saturday or Sunday. By Monday, we were looking at properties. Now, mind you, we hadn't done any research. We did not. We were like not even really saving money to invest. Like I always tell people we were living really well, but we were not building wealth. Like we were going on four international vacations a year. And that's that's not even counting like domestic vacations and just like building custom closets in our house. And not to say that any of those things are bad, but none of our money was making money. And so we had this idea to invest in real estate, start looking at properties. And we ended up three months later buying a duplex, again, with no idea what the heck we were doing. That's actually a pretty quick turnaround time from just having the the idea to actually taking steps to do yeah. it. So, you know, you actually you were leveraging your W two job, your um, full time job, probably to get into the the real estate world to start. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, it was a big help. But even with that W two job, because we were not saving, so the duplex we bought was in Washington D.C. It was two hundred and twenty eight thousand dollars. So the down payment was about, I think it was like fifty seven thousand dollars, which is a lot of money. Like especially if you're not saving for it. And so this was in like two thousand fourteen, I believe. And um, we ended up borrowing that money from our retirement accounts because it was the only way that we were able to afford it. And I want to make sure I'm making the distinction that we took a loan. We didn't take an early withdrawal or anything like that. And I want to say too, if anyone tries to do this um, method, please consult with a financial advisor. This is not legal advice. This is not, we're, we're on like a law podcast, right? But we took a loan from our retirement accounts to afford that down payment. I mean, I'm not sure what every financial advisor would have to say for that, but did this first investment work out well? It worked really well. Like the money worked better for us in that investment than it would have in our retirement account. So that was great. But also like the cash flow from the property was amazing. Uh, We did have some hiccups along the way. Like one week after we closed and got the keys, we inherited a tenant with the property. So there was one unit where there was a tenant in it. The other unit didn't have a tenant. So we're like, cool, we'll just, you know, kind of DIY the renovations on the empty unit while we're cash flowing with this occupied unit. A week after we bought it, the tenant just up and left, like no warning. We went over there to, to take some measurements and he's like moving his stuff out of the other unit. And we're just like, where are you going? <laughs> and so that was a wake up call because we didn't know how to find tenants. Like, how do you create a lease? You know, we think we're thinking we're just going to be like smooth sailing, like collecting this money while we figure everything out. And he threw a wrench in that plan. And so what we did was we decided to put it on Airbnb. Like, let's just throw this on Airbnb, like get some furniture from Goodwill and like see if we can make it work. And it ended up being a very profitable pivot. Like we were making three times what that tenant was paying after we put it on Airbnb. With the Airbnb strategy, that's that's what we do. And three times as much income, but is it three times as much work to get going? It was a lot of work and we thankfully lived like only like a mile and a half from the property. And so it was easy for us to pop over there, but it is really high maintenance. Like Airbnb, is, it can be high maintenance at first. Yeah. So not to dive off of your story, but this kind of leaps into the, some of the work you do, but so with the people you're working with, how do you help them pick the strategy? Do you tend to encourage people to look at short-term rentals or do you discourage a lot of the your clients from working with short-term rentals? 
Yeah, two things are really important to me when identifying a property. One is figuring out what your money goal is. Like always start with that in mind because it's easy to back into it from there. Like, you know, if you're trying to make an extra $500 a month, what does that mean for where you are? Because like Detroit is different than DC, different than Raleigh, North Carolina, different than LA. Like, you know, um, that's really important to figure out what your goal is and what that looks like where you are. But the other thing is when you're identifying a property, let's say for Airbnb, that's cool because the numbers could look really good. But like, what if Airbnb doesn't work? What if your county or your city comes down with some restrictions that impacts your Airbnb business? Or what if the HOA, if you have an HOA, says no more short-term rentals? So it's very important to make sure you're also making it possible to pivot and be profitable. So if it works for Airbnb, great, but does it also work for Section 8? Does it also work for travel nurse rentals, military, student housing, like regular cash tenants? So if you can still pivot and be profitable, it's a good property. That's that's my view. You know, I love that you're starting with your clients' goals as the basis for, for everything. Yeah. But mm-hmm. I have to ask, when you got started, how clear were your goals? Not clear at all. We're like, we just want to invest in real estate and we didn't even know what numbers to run. We're like, Mm -hmm. okay, the mortgage is $1,025 a month. We're Mm -hmm. making like 1100. Cool. We're breaking even like basically. And that's not exactly like really great number crunching. (laughs) (laughs) But once we saw how profitable it was, once we kind of got our footing, my goal was always to like leave my nine to five. And it was like, how can we get there? So I I would say we reached our financial freedom number in about three or four years. I wanted to quit then. I'm like asking my husband, like, let's just quit now. And he's like, no, let's make sure it's sustainable because, you know, with real estate, there's vacancy, there's repairs, there's all kinds of ups and downs. And so we actually waited until about year six where we that's when we left our government jobs. So for those not familiar, what do you mean by your freedom number? Yeah. So we tried to figure out, okay, how much is it going to take for us to sustain our lifestyle, right? Like how much do we personally need in passive income per month to live? Um, how much do we need in savings? How much do we want in, you know, different investments? And once we reached that in cash flow and savings, that was like, okay, we can now, you know, leave our, our nine to five jobs. The Saturday that you played cash flow up until you, you when you hit your freedom number, that was six years, you said? Yeah, it was about six years. Yep. That's pretty fast. And when you say retired, I have to ask, you know, what does that mean to be retired at the age of 32? Because you look like you're busy doing a lot of things. So what does it mean to be retired? Yeah, I always say that I really retired from the nine to five, but I still work. The difference is now I'm actually doing something I love to do. And so I haven't stopped working. Like I'm not on the beach all day, but now I'm doing what I'm passionate about, which is helping others, you know, build wealth with real estate. Also, like for me, it's just, it's really the freedom to get up and like, okay, what do I want to do? What's important to me? What I thought the first year of retirement would look like, we were going to be nomads. We were going to literally travel the world, (laughs) Uh, but we ended up finding out we were expecting. And so what it really looked like was us being like new parents, which was interesting. And then the pandemic and like, all that kind of stuff. So it has looked a little different than we thought, but it's okay. Congratulations. And parenting in the pandemic has been been a real treat and surprise for everybody. I'd imagine then certainly more than we were, you were in charge of your own time, in charge of yeah. your own life. So yeah. what you've built in your retirement is the key resource, which is 
if I understand it correctly, it's a compilation of resources and advice on those who are looking to get started, but don't necessarily know where to go with real estate investing. Is that right? Exactly. Because I remember like back in the day, real estate education was very kind of like high in the sky. Like it seemed very unattainable. I remember there were always these like workshops on the weekend. You could go to these hotels and afterwards they try to sell you some big program, which there's nothing wrong with that. But it just wasn't like podcasts like yours were not were not readily available. Like you couldn't just go on Instagram and see young people and especially like minorities out here, like really sharing information and and having that representation out there. And so I decided once we started learning, like there's no reason that I can't share this information with everyone else so that others are not making those same mistakes. And so that's where the key resource was born. I wanted to make sure that I was supplying the knowledge that I thought I needed or that I knew I needed (laughs) when I started. And so it's been really exciting. Like just seeing people say like, when I saw you talk about house hacking, I had never heard of it. Now I'm on my third property or, you know, I bought my property because of the advice I heard you give. And now my brothers and sisters are doing it. It's like, literally changing people's lives and their legacies through real estate investing. So it's really, really cool. Well, what's great about some of your content is the core of it's directed to people who are just getting started, but you're having them ask the bigger questions out of the gate. You know, what are your goals? Why are we doing this in the first place? Which I think kind of gets skipped in a lot of the resources that are out there where they jump straight into the specific mm-hmm. tax advantages or or the details yeah. of things. And, and that's important, but you're kind of like the first, you look like you're the first helping hand, the concierge is helping somebody get into the space. Yeah. I feel like with like the social media age that we're in, it's great because information is so readily available, but it's also, it's kind of a two-edged sword because we can easily compare ourselves to others. Well, if Kendra said she had this many rentals, like, I just need to go do that. And it's like, no, what are your goals? Like, what are you specifically trying to do? So I'm really heavy on like leaning into that and not comparing. I mean, cause I even fall into it sometimes too. I have real estate investor friends who it seems like they're buying a new property every week, but that's not my story, right? That's not, you know, what, what is going to fit for my life. And so it's really important to like constantly remind yourself of why you're doing it in the first place. And don't just do it because I said it's a good thing to do. Actually something that's going to get you to where you want to go. So can you tell us some of the, the challenges that your clients are facing and some of the questions, the most frequently asked questions that you get? We'll be right back. Every other real estate rental property deal analysis spreadsheet is wrong. The only spreadsheet that correctly analyzes your real estate deals taking into account reserves, true cash flow, including depreciation, and your true net equity on a property is the world's greatest real estate deal analysis spreadsheet from the Real Estate Financial Planner. Download a free copy today and finally start analyzing your rental properties correctly. Go to refp.info forward slash free to download it today. Yeah, I think one of the biggest challenges is money. Like coming up with a down payment for a rental property is so hard. 20% in a lot of places could easily be $70,000, right? Like who has $70,000 lying around when you're trying to pay student loans and like all these things. And so that's why I like introducing people to house hacking because it's a way to like bypass that. So if you're listening and you haven't heard of house hacking, it's basically buying a multi-unit property, 
living in one unit and renting out the other units. And by living in it as a primary residence, you're able to like bypass that really high down payment and put a lower down payment down 3%, 3.5%, 5 10%, depending on the loan you get. And so I love introducing that because not only is house hacking a way to get a lower down payment, but it could potentially lower your living expenses depending on how the numbers work out. You have tenants that are literally paying your debt for you. If you get a mortgage, that's debt. Your tenants are paying your debt. You're living there for free. You're building wealth. And so um, that was a long answer to your question. I think funding is a huge factor that like keeps people out of the game. Mm-hmm. And house hacking is one way to kind of get around it. Market that we're in right now where it's very much a seller's market. The the rate of appreciation is a little out of control, making it tougher and tougher, especially for the first time home buyer to get into the space. How has it changed the work that you're doing and working with your clients? I want to make sure that everyone knows about the resources available to them as a first time home buyer. There are so many grants and down payment assistance programs out there that I wish I had known about that can literally eliminate or lower your down payment. And so we're talking about grants that are at a city level in a national level, right? That can, that will literally lower or eliminate that down payment. And that's one of the biggest hurdles to home ownership, I, I really believe, is the down payment. In my background, my, my father, my brother, my sister, oddly enough, not me, but my, they all went into house hacking without realizing that's what they were doing. Wow. Um, either, either bought, father in the, in the case of my father, a duplex, or in the case of my siblings, a multi-bedroom um, place and rented out the other bedrooms. And that's how they yep. they got the toehold and were able to mm-hmm. to to spin up their careers. Um, you know, my mm-hmm. sister's a teacher and she used this income to really supplement the work she does and kind of free her up to take work like that. That's not necessarily the highest paid W2 job in the world. Yeah. I love house hacking and I think it's something that I wish more of my own clients were aware of heading when they were make, going to the first time home buying space. What other strategies are you encouraging right now? Yeah, I really love kind of thinking outside the box. Like I mentioned earlier, like when people think of rental income, they think of just a regular tenant. Like, but what about the different creative ways to rent your space out? Like doing what's called the location rental strategy. So renting it out for photo shoots, film shoots, meetings, people are renting out their backyard spaces and making rental income. So there are so many ways. And if you think about the age that we're in, like with social media, there's so many content creators. People are looking for spaces that look really cool to film YouTube videos, cooking tutorials. And so if you have a basement apartment, right, you don't have to put a long-term tenant in there. What if you just rent it out to rent it out on peer space and where you can rent it by the hour to content creators and things like that? And so just kind of thinking outside the box. One thing that I personally want to try is um, the shipping container home space. That's something that I'm personally looking into. So I think it's really cool. I'd love to hear what you know about the space because it's something that intrigues me. But in our area, in we're in Boston, Massachusetts, the the zoning restrictions and the code restrictions are so onerous that some of the more novel ways to invest are almost ruled out from the very beginning. So with the smaller <laughs> homes, the container homes, I mean, I'd love to hear anything that you that you know about the space or what you hope to do. Yes. And that's a huge thing is making sure the zoning of the land um, will allow it. And also that the city will allow it because some cities aren't allowing like shipping container 
homes. I'm in San Antonio, Texas right now. Like we started out investing. I don't know if I mentioned that we started out in DC mm-hmm. and we um, also have a rental in Baltimore, Maryland, but we moved to San Antonio right before the pandemic to be close to family. And in San Antonio, they do allow shipping container homes and I've seen some around the city. And so mm-hmm. that's huge, making sure that it's actually allowed where you are. But there are also some alternatives to shipping container homes, like already built like modular homes and accessory dwelling units and things like that. There are a few companies I've had my eyes on that are like shipping pretty much already prefab like modular homes, which is also very interesting. I followed um, a project in a nearby city. It was a six unit condominium building, but it was largely prefabricated actually in Pennsylvania and then trucked all the Mm -hmm. way up here and assembled on site. And I thought that was fairly innovative. That's not something we see too much around here, but I love the innovation in in this space. So, you know, aside from the key resource, you wrote a book recently and it's coming very soon. It's available for pre-order. Acres, inspiring stories of 25 real estate investors who are normalizing black wealth one acre at a time. When is this book coming out? Yeah. So it's available for pre-order now. It won't ship until the summer. And I actually self-published it, which is why like the long lead time, I want to make sure I know like how many to actually put out there in print, but I'm super excited about it because I just feel like in the Black community, there's a lot of bad news all the time, but I started seeing this shift where so many young Black investors were like just killing it in the real estate game. And I wanted to shine a light on that. Because I know that representation is very important, right? And people need to see themselves represented in the stories that inspire them. And so I wanted to really just showcase, I mean, the people in this book are doing amazing things. You'll hear stories about people that went from homelessness, like sleeping in a car to owning multi-million dollar real estate portfolios. Another couple went from six figures of consumer debt to owning multi-million dollar real estate portfolio. Um, People flip houses, wholesale, all kinds of different stories in there. I'm excited about it because it's history, right? Like this, this is history. And I'm humbled to be able to bring uh, those stories to the world. The long title of the book, there's the word normalizing black wealth one acre at a time. And the term normalizing caught my attention. Is that, Mm -hmm. I think your prior answer touched on that a little bit, but can you explain the word normalizing in there? Yes. I really want it to not be such a surprise. And this comes from personal experience. Like when I would go and do business around the city and we're, you know, getting permits or just whatever needs to be done for our properties, whoever we're doing business with behind the counter is like, well, who's the owner? We actually had police come to one of our properties one time and to talk to a tenant, that's a whole other story. And they're they like, well, who's the owner of this apartment building? And I'm like, it's me. And they didn't believe me. So I had to literally go to my file cabinet, get the deed for the property, show them that wasn't enough. I had to get my ID and then show them, yes, this is me. This is my name on the deed. Then they asked for my husband. They're like, well, where's your husband? So then I had to get him to come home from work to prove to the police that we actually own the building. And I'm like, okay, so... It's not normal. People don't just immediately believe me when I say, yes, I'm young and I'm black and I own this property. I own multiple properties. I remember when I worked a nine to five telling my coworkers what we were doing and they were just like, did you hit the lottery? Like they just couldn't fathom. And so this is what I mean by normalizing. Like I want it to no longer be a shock or a surprise or something that is out of the ordinary. And so there are so many stories out there that prove that, you know, this is the new normal. Is that experience common among those you profiled in the book? Yes. Yeah. We all always talk about it. It's like always such a surprise and not even from 
those who are outside of our community. I mean, even talking to people who are also black are just like, what? Like, how did y'all do this? Like, did you hit the lottery? Are you, are you like, you come from money? So I want to make sure that everybody can see what we're doing and to inspire others that like, you can do this too. Like if I can do it, I literally had bad money habits all like well into my (laughs) twenties. So I have not always been good with money. I was not born with money. Like, um, so if I can do it, literally anybody can do it. That's, that's the story. Can you also preview some of the other themes um, and lessons that are in the book? I know some, we don't necessarily want to wait until summer to hear the whole, to get, to get everything. Um, what are some of the other themes that, um, that you touch upon in the book? Yeah, it's really just showing how each person kind of like the trajectory of their real estate career or, you know, their real estate journey and talking about how they went up against like family being naysayers. Like you can't do this. Like this is crazy. Uh, talking about how they got creative, like finding funding, right? Once you, when you're a new real estate investor, after like the first or second or third deal, you start really running out of money. Like, it's like where do I get the next amount of funds from? So talking about like battling the naysayers, you know, getting creative with money, um, how they were able to overcome some of those hurdles. It's all in there. So the book is not only meant to be like inspiring and empowering, but they really give some really good educational gems in the book. And so that's what I'm excited about as well. When you put together the book, how did you identify and locate um, these investors? I've been following a lot of them on Instagram. And it's funny because when I first started the key resource, I would just DM people that I saw like other young black investors, like, Hey, can I repost your information on my page? Like, this is so cool. I've always wanted to shine a light on what others are doing because what I realized really quickly is the way that I invest in real estate, I'm a buy and hold investor, but my audience may not, they, that might not be for them. And I wanted to make sure I was showing them a diverse, you know, diverse ways to invest in real estate. So I'm like, Hey, can I repost this? Can I rep-? And then what I started doing was hosting online summits. I'm like, let's do an online summit to really show people different strategies. And so it's just evolved. And now I'm like, well, let's put this in a book, but not just any book. Like let's put this in a coffee table book. That's like a really heavy, beautiful piece of art. That's also educational. That will also like stay with people for a lifetime. It's a conversation starter. It can, it's a beautiful decor item, right? And it's also educational and inspiring. So what I did was I started just reaching out to some of my friends in the space, some people I admire on social media. I did audio interviews just like, you know, we're doing now, got them transcribed. And then I kind of summarized it down into what kind of reads like a feature article in a magazine for each person. And so it's also coupled with like beautiful, beautiful pictures of them standing in front of their properties, standing on land they own, standing with their families in front of these properties. The really cool thing too, is I'm using the proceeds of the book to go to a scholarship fund for where I went to undergrad, which is North Carolina A&T State University. It's a historically black college. It was literally, the college was founded as an 1890 land grant university. The 1890 land grant universities. Um, land was set aside in 1890 for these schools for um, Native Americans and Black Americans who were not able to get into uh, schools like they should have, like they should have back then. And it's just so cool that it's a full circle moment. A book about normalizing Black wealth is going to be giving scholarships to a school that was literally founded because Black people couldn't go to school. 
um, couldn't get that that higher education. And so, like I said, I'm humbled to be sharing these stories, but I'm even more humbled to be giving like back to students at my alma mater. So super cool. Sorry, I'm just like going on. <laughs> I love that. And if I didn't have more questions. I would want to end just kind of on that note right there. But in interviewed all these people and summarized their work, was there anything that surprised you? Was there anything that surprised me? At the end of each interview, I asked for like words of wisdom from everybody. And there was just this common theme. I don't want to ruin that either, but it was just interesting that everyone's so different. The ages are different. They're all from different parts of the country. They all invest differently, but all has something pretty similar to say as far as their words of wisdom that they've learned from being in in the real estate industry for several years. And I thought that was really, really cool. What's coming next for you? What are you working on next? So besides this book, I'm actually wanting to make this, I want Acres to be like a series. I I want it to be volumes and volumes, almost like those encyclopedias back in the day. Mm -hmm. That's how I envision this because this is only 25 stories. Like there's so many more stories to tell. I'm just scratching the surface. And so as soon as I get to a point where I can start working working on book two, I'm going to be doing that. Also, I'm the mom of a two-year-old who's home with us all day. And that's literally (laughs) what I do. I would say homeschooling, but she's two. But like, basically, that's it for me right now. Okay. That's a lot. Um, (laughs) It is a lot. Now is the part of our program where we we ask the same questions of all our guests um, as we head to the wrap up. If you had to speak on one topic with little or no preparation, get up on stage and speak for 20 to 30 minutes, what's a topic you could speak about? House hacking, definitely. (laughs) Absolutely. All right. Um, Could you tell us something that happened early on in your life that affects your life and career today? Yes, I would say definitely the entrepreneurship in me. Uh, My mom allowed me to set up a store in our house like years ago and learning about the value of money and like reinvesting the money, like that kind of thing, even though we didn't talk about investing. I still learned early on, I think, like buying candy for this much and then reselling it for this much and the profits and going back and buying more. And so I think that always stuck with me. Finally, what's something that you're reading, watching or listening to these days? Yeah, I just finished listening to on Audible um, a book called What Happened to You about how things in in your life like can impact you and, and things like that. It's by Oprah and I forget the other author's name, but it's really, really good. Great. Finally, you know, you're working on a lot of things right there. How, how can our listeners find you? Yeah, you guys can find me on Instagram at the key resource or my website, thekeyresource.com. If you have any questions or just want to say, Hey, you can definitely DM me and let me know that you found out about me on this podcast. And I cannot wait to chat with you guys. Thank you so much, Kendra, for joining us. Uh, Kendra is the founder and creator of The Key Resource and the author of Acres. My name is Rory Gill. You can find me at Next Home Tuttletown, nexthometuttletown.com or Urban Village Legal, urbanvillagelegal.com. Thank you for so much for listening. Like, subscribe, and all of that. And we'll see you next time. This has been the Real Estate Law Podcast. Because real estate is more than just pretty pictures. And law goes well beyond the paperwork and courtroom arguments. We're powered by Next Home Titletown, Greater Boston's progressive real estate brokerage. More at nexthometitletown.com. And Urban Village Legal, Massachusetts Real Estate Council, serving savvy property owners, lenders, and investors. More at 
urbanvillagelegal.com. Today's conversation was not legal advice, but we hope you found it entertaining and informative. Discover more at realestatelawpodcast.com. Thank you for listening.